0: Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles, please, with me to the book of Hebrews. We have finally made it out of chapter one, and we have made it to chapter two. We are going to look at four verses in chapter two. It's on page 1001 on the Bibles in the pew, or if you purchase them that are out in the hall. Uh, we're going to look at verses one through four. Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. Um, about a friend of mine. He stands out in my mind because he was one of the first people that I ever met with for discipleship. Uh, I'm going to call his name James. James had one of those dramatic conversions. You know those stories, right? Uh, He went from chasing after all the wrong things that were destroying him, and causing him to destroy others. And, and then he, he heard about uh, the gospel. He heard about the cross. He heard about forgiveness of sins. The kind of things that we preach about. And his life was radically transformed. Instead of sharing with others his passion for drugs. He started sharing his passion for Jesus. And I met James shortly after his conversion. And it was a, during a time in his life. In which he was actually legally confined to his house. And he had nothing to do. So he spent all day just devouring the scriptures. And I would meet with him in his living room, this big uh, old house. And it stands out in my mind, the living room had this this, uh, rustic antique furniture. We'd sit there on the sofas, and we would just talk about scripture. And we would talk about the Bible and how it applies. And his parents, who actually weren't Christians, looked on in amazement at the transformation that had taken place in their son. But eventually... James was allowed to go out of his house. At first, he attended church regularly, but then he began to drift. He got some money, which gave him some freedom, and that got him into trouble. He repented, but his heart really wasn't in it. His church attendance began to decline, and when I met with him in his living room, he wasn't really concerned about the scriptures anymore. He was more talking about the events of his own life. And then our meetings became more sporadic, and eventually he didn't have time at all. James drifted out of my life, and a couple of years later, I re- uh, James talked with me, and he told me that he no longer considered himself a Christian at all. He embraced a moralistic religion, that is, a religion that works according to rules, not the relationship with Christ, even as, quite ironically, he continued to live amorally. It's amazing how many people embrace rules and find comfort in rules, even as they commit to breaking them at the same time. The point of this story is that James had drifted away. Jesus told a parable about people like James, didn't he? A farmer sows seed in various places on a path, on on rocky soil, on thorns, and on good soil. Now the seed that grew in good soil sprouted into a lasting real plant. Well, the seed that was sown on rocky soil and in the midst of thorns, it also looked like a plant for a while, but then it withered away, demonstrating that it had no real roots at all. The point of the parable is that there are people who seem to begin well. They start running what looks like the race. They sprout, but they don't have real lasting life. And the indication of that is that they began to drift away. And in the end, they've been revealed as people who never believed at all. In the case of James, my friend, it became clear that he never really had taken refuge in Christ. He had taken refuge in rigorous Bible study, which is different than taking refuge in Christ. He liked the devotional form, but he never really loved Jesus. Well, friends, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know people like James. And perhaps that person, like James, is your spouse. If so, my heart goes out to you because that is hard. Or maybe it's your brother or sister, or one of your children, which is also really, really hard. Or maybe your best friend in church that you sort of grew up with together. Or maybe even you. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you beginning to drift? Well, our passage in Hebrews 2, if you haven't guessed already, addresses the issue of drifting hearts and drifting lives. So let's look at this together. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. The Lord, help us to... Learn the things that you wrote about here in your word for our instruction. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open. We pray that we would not be closed to your word, but we would be open to your word. Recognizing that you are infinitely wise and good and just. And Lord, we know that when we see you face to face, it all becomes clear. We know that you, we know that we will say thank you, Lord, because everything worked out exactly the way we would have wanted it to, as we see how it all works out in the end. Lord, let us trust your perfect plan and your perfect wisdom. Let us believe in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after reading that passage, I think you see pretty clearly how it addresses that issue of drifting away, right? I think it's also pretty clear from this passage, and we need to realize this at the outset, that the stakes of this drifting away are quite high. I mean, look at, look at the passage here. He talks about, um, let me see exactly what verse it is. Make sure I, I get it right here. He, he talks about here uh, neglecting such a great salvation. Verse 3 if we neglect such a great salvation. And neglecting salvation, in other words, is not believing in this salvation. And The author there in verses 2 and 3 compares the penalties and sanctions for neglecting this so great a salvation with the, the penalties involved in being outside the Old Covenant in, in the Old Testament. The penalties associated with God's just wrath. So, so what we're dealing with here in Drifting Away is, is a matter of spiritual life and death, of heaven and hell. The stakes could not be higher. We're not talking with, this passage in Hebrews 2 is not talking about whether a person will sort of grow in Christ to their full potential. Which, by the way, none of us are doing, right? You know, we're all sinners. Or none of us are perfect. We're talking here in, in Hebrews 2 about whether or not a person is truly a believer. And because the stakes are so high, the author here wants us to be very sensitive to any subtle movement in our hearts away from Christ. Drifting, right? And, you know, if, it didn't, if the stakes were not as high, well, you know, a little drift one way or another would not be that big of a deal, Sort of like, you know, if you're a parent, maybe you have kids, or maybe it's, you know, other people's kids. If they're playing at the playground, and, you know, there's like no danger in sight, and it's a large playground, a safe playground, you don't really care where they are at any one moment exactly, right? You just want them to be in a general area. But if you're standing next to a freeway, all of a sudden the slightest movement will give you a heart attack, right? Because the stakes are so high. So also here... The stakes of drifting away from Christ are high. And the author wants to just impress that upon our hearts at the very outset, so we pay careful attention to what he says here. Sorry. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that idea of drifting. What is this drifting? The, The danger of drifting is that you can do it but not realize that you're doing it, right? That, that's what drifting is. Uh, we took our kids to the beach a week or so ago, and I'm not a beach person per se. My wife is, so she's able to sort of, you know, negotiate the situation, tell our kids about what they have to do, and, and she told them to be very careful about that particular current at the beach that is going to pull you, you know, down shore. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Where if you're playing in the waves, it kind of feels like you're going just back and forth, but in actuality, each time you're drifting a little bit down the shore, it happens, and it happened to us, and, and sure enough, our kids started, uh, you know, they're right here playing with us, and they're, they're just, you know, having fun, being washed back and forth in the water, and they start drifting away just a little bit. And the danger that we tried to alert our kids in that drifting problem was not that they would start, you know, being pulled away violently by a current. In some sense, that wouldn't be as bad because they would know something was going on and they yell, help, help, and we would come and get them. The danger is that they could start moving and not realize it. Or, or have you ever thought your car was completely stopped and it actually wasn't? And you only realize that when it hit something that was completely stopped? Yeah, I've done that. Drifting is dangerous because you don't realize you're doing it. And here the stakes are really high. So I think we have to ask the question, who is the author of Hebrews addressing when he warns about the problem of drifting? That is to say, what sort of people does the author of Hebrews want to tell that they're, they could be drifting away? And I wonder if the way you answer that question is to think, oh, it." He's talking here about, you know, borderline Christians. Christians who aren't as committed to Christ in the way you define commitment to Christ. Christians who struggle with more obvious sins. I'm so glad so-and-so's here for this message on Drifty. What does the text actually say here? It says, we must pay much closer attention. Doesn't it? We must do this. The author of this inspired letter puts himself in the category of those who must concern themselves with drifting away. This was what Steve was getting at when he sent out the email this week uh, instructing us to pay attention to the pronouns here. What are the pronouns here? It says, we. And if the author of this letter puts himself in that category of one who must pay attention lest he drift away, doesn't it make sense that we all are there? You remember a few weeks ago, a month ago now, really, I, uh, I, when I preached this whole book as a sermon, I said that originally it was a sermon that was, was preached to the church. Therefore, the, the original preacher here was addressing a congregation filled with professing believers, with Sunday school teachers, with, with nursery workers, with, with deacons, with pastors. And he told them all to watch. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage applies to us. Now, but wait a minute, Mike, you might say, I thought the Bible teaches that a believer cannot lose his or her salvation. And it does. Our church statement of faith firmly, clearly states those whom God has accepted in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Yes. Yes. Good job. And sanctified by his spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We have a good statement of faith, by the way. You, you should read it. It's, it's up on our website. We have it around. It was there since the foundation founding of this church. Um, it, it'll help you understand theology better. We say that a, a real believer will not ultimately fall away. And we get that from passages like John 10, when Jesus says that he's the good shepherd and no one can pluck the sheep out of his hands. We get that from Romans 8, that says all those whom God has justified, that is, when they initially trust in Christ... He will sanctify. That is, he will bring to completion. Everybody who gets on the train will get off the train. God will leave none behind. A believer cannot lose his or her salvation. So then why is there this command to watch that we do not drift away? Why is it even on the table for Christians to have to concern themselves with this matter? The answer is... Because one of the ways in which God keeps us from drifting away is by giving us this, this command not to drift away. Yes, God keeps all true believers from drifting away. How does he do it? By commanding them to pay attention to their hearts so they don't drift. When we went to the beach with our kids, we were you know, as, as certain as any human can be that we were not going to lose them, Right? We were going to watch them like a hawk. We weren't going to let them out of our sight. And one of the ways that we made certain that we would not lose them was by instructing them about being careful of drifting away. We told them what of the danger so that it wouldn't happen. And God here, as the perfect parent, is making sure that his children don't ultimately fall away by warning them. He's using the warning here to make sure that none of his children will be lost. So this warning is for Christians, so that they are kept. It is through the command that God guarantees they will not fall away. More than the command, of course, the Holy Spirit, regeneration, many other things. The church, for one, but the command is part of it. But of course, some people do fall away, don't they? I told you the story of James. He denounced Christ and was living a horribly immoral life. The warning didn't stop him from falling away. You see, only true believers heed the warning. Not all who claim to be true believers are. Jesus made that abundantly clear. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who puts on the Christian jersey is, is really a true believer. The warning about drifting away, goes out to the entire church. And true believers are those who listen to Christ's voice. Jesus said, they know my voice. True believers listen to Christ and give heed to the warning so that they don't fall away. The unbeliever, who appears as a believer for a little while, ironically thinks the warning doesn't apply to them. And so they fall away. It's like this. Imagine if there were other kids playing with our kids on the beach. They're all a group. They all begin to drift away a little bit. We call our kids back, so our kids come. The other kids aren't trained to listen to our voice. Perhaps their parents are particularly fine with them there, so they don't come. You know, it's helpful to point out that this isn't the only time we're warned in this manner. This isn't the only time in Scripture that we're called to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. 1 Peter 1.10, the apostle there says, Therefore, brothers, listen to this, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Similar language with our passage, right? Diligent, pay careful attention, make sure that you're in the faith, is what the apostle Peter is saying there. Or Colossians 1.22, Christ has now reconciled you in his body of the flesh by his death, that is, you're reconciled, you're saved, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is, your acceptance before God does not come by your own works, but by Christ. But then listen to this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, or drifting we could even say, from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There's an implicit warning in there to watch to make sure you're not moving away from the gospel, moving away from Christ. True Christians heed the commands from their Savior and examine their faith to make sure it's really upon the right foundation. They don't think this question to examine their faith is illegitimate. They know it is legitimate, so they make sure they're really trusting in Christ. Non-Christians do not concern themselves with the words of Christ. And therefore, they typically don't think that this command even applies to them. So who is the author of Hebrews addressing here in this command? He's addressing all who claim to be Christians. And like any good parent, God warns us of the danger so that we will be kept from it. And like obedient children, like true children, we ought to take his warnings seriously. So so how do we do it? How do we take this warning about drifting away seriously? Well, the author tells us, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. That's how we don't drift away. The the antidote for drifting away is paying more attention to what we've heard. I, I think that language... Pay much closer attention is interesting. It, it, it sounds like something a parent would say, right? Most of us have heard something similar from our parents who, you know, who in, in Acts where they're loving us say, hey, you got to give more attention to this area. Not that you're neglecting it, but give more attention because there's a danger here that you don't see. You're vulnerable to something you don't realize. So, so give even more attention to this area. That's what God's doing here give more attention to the things they've heard. And by the things he's, they've heard, he means the gospel. That's what he means by the things they've heard. And I can, I can show it to you here. Um, we've already had a reference in Hebrews to hearing, sort of. Do you remember the very first verse in the book of Hebrews? I've read it, you know, umpteen times now because we've just gone through it so many, so often. Uh, chapter one, verse one. Long ago, In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. If God has spoken finally and climactically through His Son, by implication, we must listen to Him. Then look down at chapter 2, verse 3. See that verse there? The author tells us that this so great salvation was first spoken by the Lord and then confirmed by those who heard. Salvation is a message that is spoken and thus it is a message that we must listen to and pay attention to. So in other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, hold fast to the message of Christ dying on the cross for sin. Hold fast to the message of Christ being raised up again for new life for all who believe in him. Pay attention to that message. Give heed to that message. Extra attention to that message so that you don't drift away. Now, obviously, he doesn't think that they've entirely neglected the message, right? They've heard it before. It's not coming to them as new. But they need to pay even closer attention to it. They need to give it even more importance and weight in their lives. Friends, this is just good advice for all Christians. But I think I see how it, it applies particularly to us as a church. I don't think we've neglected the gospel, but we could give even greater attention to the gospel. We could give more attention to it. We could pay attention to it more carefully because it has implications for our lives, instructions for our lives that we don't even begin to realize the full extent of. Now, I want to be more specific about what it means to give more attention to the gospel because, you know, just stating it like it is, it's one of those commands that uh, we could just say, oh, yeah, that's well and good, but then not really understand what it means. But at first I wonder if it strikes you a little odd that the antidote to drifting is giving more attention to the gospel, giving more attention to Christ, you could say because the Christ is the gospel. Does that strike you as a little odd? Because I wonder if you would naturally think, well, well, if you're drifting, that means you're going to go outside God's will. So the thing to do then is give more attention to the rules. Here's the rules you must obey so you do not go outside God's will. I mean, that is kind of how the Old Covenant works. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it said, These things which I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children... You shall bind them on your doorpost. In other words, the author of Moses there is saying, pay more attention to the law. Give closer attention to the law. And Moses is telling them that so they won't drift away from God and become like all the other nations. But the author of Hebrews here, and let me just say something about the whole theology of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews understands That there is a great difference between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant in Christ. And later on in the book of Hebrews, we'll get to this fascinating section where the author of Hebrews says, We have not come to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was where the law was given. And he says, We've not come to that place where there's a terrifying message of judgment. We've come to Mount Zion, which is the place where God's presence dwelt. The place where Christ is. The place where we have access to God by faith and grace. You see, the new covenant is different than the old. The new covenant tells us that the demands of the law have been met for us in Christ. We are now beloved and accepted in Christ. We have access to God through Christ. The way to be holy, therefore, is not first by giving extra close attention to the law. Oh yes, we need the law in our lives. But what we need to give extra attention to, because you can't give attention, equal attention to everything, right? What we need to give extra attention to is the gospel of Christ, because it is through him that we find mercy and grace in time of need. Not saying here that we don't need the law or that it doesn't apply to our lives. It most certainly does. But the paradox here is that we will obey better By giving intention to the gospel first. It is only through the gospel. That we have the resources to obey the law. So the author of Hebrews is saying. Don't drift away from the gospel. Don't drift away from Christ. Who has climactically revealed God's revelation for us. Don't drift away from that. Now. You might say to yourself. But if the message that we don't drift away from is the gospel, how in the world would we want to drift away from that? Like, how could we do that? And the answer is, I don't know, but we sure do, don't we? Here are a few ways. See, sometimes we begin to do well in certain areas. And then our confidence switches from confidence in Christ and his righteousness given to us to our performance. And that's drifting back to the law again. Or to put it another way, we think to ourselves, well, Christ was well and good for me when I was an obvious sinner. And now that I've cleaned up my life a bit, I'd like people to, to notice me for what I've done. I'd like to get credit to that, for that. And so we appeal to God based on our own performance. Or we want respect in the eyes of the world, so we start to value what the world values. And so we start playing according to the rules of the world's game. And so our we value our education or our career or our success in sports or business more than we value our identity in Christ. Or instead of caring only what God thinks of us, we start caring intensely what others think of us. Or we start seeking protection according to the rules, the world system. We, we want safety according to how the world defines safety. And friends, all of this is a drift away from Christ. It is not paying close enough attention to the gospel, to who Christ is and what he's done for us and who we are in him. And friends, if we're honest, it's a, it's a temptation that we all face. So, so why does this command apply to all of us? Because all of us are tempted to drift away from Christ. And we need to pay more attention to who Christ is and, and what he said to us that we may not drift away. Let me give you a few more, a few specifics. What does it look like to pay even closer attention to the gospel? First, it looks like picking up God's word and reading it. That wouldn't be a bad place to start. I was talking to a brother in Christ this week whom I respect and, and whose life has been transformed through scripture. And one of the things that he does is he just constantly reads it. In a few years, he developed an amazing knowledge of Scripture, which, of course, the knowledge in and of itself doesn't do anything, but he gives rigorous attention to it. He told me a story of how he was talking to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever thought, you know, it would be a good idea to read the Bible better, to read the Bible some. And, and my friend just started explaining to this unbeliever, oh, yeah, here's how you can read the whole thing. You can do these many chapters a day, and you can, you can read it really, really well. At first I thought, well, that's a little bit of an odd evangelistic strategy. But then I thought, you know, what's the best thing for this unbeliever? It's if he picks up God's word and actually reads it himself. Friends, do you pick up the Bible and give attention to it during the week? Well, friends, if not, how are you going to pay even closer attention to what you've heard? So think about when when this week, as you're thinking about your week ahead, when do you think you're going to pick up your Bible and read Some chapters that will encourage you. When do you think you'll pick up the Bible and and go back over Hebrews? And and kids here, I think there's something about this in the children's bulletin, isn't it? The, The need to read the Bible is not just for parents. It's also for children. It'll do you good too. It's God's message for you. As much as it is God's message for your parents. So friends, pick up God's word and read it. Give extra attention to it. That's obeying the command here. And in light of the warning that we have about not drifting away, it's a very good thing to do. Another implication. It looks like giving special attention to what is preached. God has designed preaching to be one of the fundamental ways of you giving even closer attention to his word. I was reading a book about preaching this week, and it said that the goal of preaching is to say, in other words, what the text says. Uh, thus the the text commands the sermon commands if the text encourages the sermon encourages if the text warns as in this passage the sermon warns so in essence preaching is designed to help you give special attention to the things that you have heard did you see this part did you understand the full implications for your life here maybe this part was harder to understand so here's the explanation preaching helps us to stop and reflect on the meaning of a text and its application for our lives. So I would encourage you. I mean, this is preaching to the choir in some extent because you're all here listening to the sermon already, of course. Make it a priority and think through what the sermon said. Think about the application for your life. Sometimes people ask me, what can I do to help serve in church? The first answer to that question is to pay careful attention to God's word. If you aren't doing that, nothing else that you do in the church will really make that much of a difference, and actually, you'll probably cause problems. Pay close attention to God's word first. There's a booklet out in the hallway called Listen Up. Have you seen it? There's a large pile of them on the table out there. That has some great advice On what you should do to take away more from the sermons. To do a better job listening to sermons. I commend it to you. Encourage you to read it through. You know, I love the wisdom behind this fatherly exhortation. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. He's not saying there that we aren't paying any attention. But he's calling us to give more attention. I think that's what we need to hear. One more implication, the third one here, first was to read it, next was to use the sermons well, third, and this is in some ways the most difficult, yet it really gets at that idea of giving even more attention, and here's what it is. Make the connection between the gospel and your fears and temptations. You know, connect the two so they aren't entirely separated in spheres of your mind, and then fight those fears and temptations by the gospel. That's probably confusing, but let me give you an example here, what I mean. When people come to me distraught, sometimes I ask them, what do you fear? And by the way, that's not a bad question. When your life feels all jumbled together in a mess, just naming your fears often really helps a lot, because it usually you realize, hey, it's not so bad after all. But I ask people, what do you fear? And then I help them connect their fears with the gospel. So let's just do a little bit of that right now. Do you fear being alone? Something that's a general fear, right? The gospel has something to say about that, doesn't it? You are welcome in Christ. You are one with Christ. You have access to Trinitarian fellowship. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not alone. Do you fear failure, guilt, and shame? Well, the gospel speaks to that too, doesn't it? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus takes our shame. Friends, your guilt and shame no longer stick to you. They no longer control you. Do you fear death? I think the gospel has something to say about that too, don't you? We'll see as the epistle to the Hebrews goes on that that is a significant fear that Jesus takes away. So friends, make the connection between your fears and the truth of the gospel and apply the gospel to those fears and then say to those fears, you don't control me anymore. Apply the gospel to those areas of your life that you're tempted to sin. Are you tempted to some illicit pleasure, drunkenness, pornography, overeating M&M's? They're all in the same category, really, a false refuge. The gospel offers pleasure in Christ that is full and lasting. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forever, says David in Psalm 16. That's the pleasure you need to seek. And that's the refuge you need to seek, too. Are you tempted towards out-and-out selfishness? The heart wants what the heart wants, Right? You want to be God in your world. And you want everything around you to answer to what you say. Well, friends, remember the gospel. That sin is not your master anymore, but Christ is your master. And you need to get with the program and submit to him. Because he is a good and gracious master. And he wants you to lead you into life. Friends, if you can't figure out how the gospel connects to your fears or your temptations, talk to somebody else in the church. Ask them for help. That Asking for help is part of giving more attention to the things we've heard. And if you guys can't figure it out together, talk to Steve or myself or somebody else that you respect. And if we can't figure it out, we'll ask for even more help. Because it's important. The stakes are high. We must give careful attention to what we've heard. Now, in closing, I just want to circle back to something we said in the beginning. Why are the stakes so high Let's just meditate on this for a second so that uh, we'll understand the urgency of doing what this passage tells us to do. Look there at verses 2 to 4. If the message spoken by angels proved reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which was first spoken by the Lord? And it was attested to us by those who've heard. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various gifts and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's this argument here? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, in effect, hey, guys, you remember the old covenant, right? The old covenant, as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews, we see that it is obsolete and it is wasting away. And in its heyday, back in the time of Moses, the Old Covenant was only a shadow of the true covenant in Christ. It was not meant to be lasting, but only temporary. And even still, that Old Covenant that was temporary and fading away was enforced to a T. Every time it was violated, sanctions were put in place. Every infraction received a just retribution. Why is that? Why did God punish sin when the law was broken? Well, the answer is God is righteous, and he must punish sin for him to be true to his character. God created us for his own glory, for his, for his praise. That's why we're here. And when we turn that praise to another that insults his character, that's a grievous offense. God's not being cruel when he punishes sin. He's being consistent, and he's being just. Friends, you know that if there was no justice in this world, it would not work. All our justice comes from the character of God. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we're all on the wrong side of that justice when it comes to our standing before God. And thus, the old covenant revealed at the end of the day that nobody has lived up. And according to the old covenant, we all receive God's wrath. But the new covenant is not like the old in the new covenant that's revealed in Christ, it, it, Christ has met the demands of the law. Christ came and lived a perfect life as we were meant to live, and then he died on the cross to take the penalty that we deserved. And he gives us new life, not by us earning it, but as a gift through his resurrection. So the author of Hebrews then is asking us a rhetorical and provocative question. He's saying, okay guys, understanding understanding how everything anyone did wrong in the Old Covenant received a just penalty, how much worse off are we if we neglect the salvation that is given to us in the New Covenant? You see, if we neglect the salvation that is given to us in the New Covenant, not only will we receive all the penalties of the Old Covenant that are against us, but on top of that, we'll be guilty of rejecting the one salvation that God has provided. I don't know about you, but I do not want to stand before God on the last day and say, and have to explain why I did not want to receive Christ's death as a covering for my sin when I had a chance. I mean, how's that conversation going to go? God, I, I thought I kind of wanted to stand on my own two feet, so I rejected the most incredible offer of love that's ever been given. Or God, I didn't really think you meant what you said when any sin could be forgiven in Christ. So I spent years trying to make myself presentable first. Friends, try to spin that any way you want. It's not going to sound good. It's not going to sound good because it's a terrible insult to God's character. And worst of all, it insults his son, which rightfully he doesn't take kindly to. I wonder if you think, well, this is the part where the pastor's really speaking to non-Christians here. And yes, of course, if you're not a Christian, you do need to know about this Jesus and believe on him. But this text was written to believers. We all must give attention to these things. We all must look to the gospel and give more attention to the gospel because we do not want to stand before God and tell him that we neglected it. Friends, as a church, let me just also say here, in case I wasn't clear, when we believe the gospel, we are secure. He, he forgives our sins. He accepts us. We are welcome. And we still have to give even more attention to the gospel because that is the way we will grow. Friends, let's, as a church, pay even closer attention to the gospel. Let's pray.